You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. Welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd podcast. Nerd. That's the nerd alarm. The nerd alert. <laughs> As always, I'm joined by Alex and Cap from the Something Good for You podcast. What's yo, up, yo. everybody? Uh, I'm Russ, and uh, we have been tracking the history of Kiss album by album, year by year. Just uh, talking about stuff and trying to figure out what's what's going on with you know the between the the official narrative and probably what might not be well, always we, acknowledged but uh you know we're probably going to get a lot of stuff wrong but that's part of the fun of doing this we don't claim to be experts um we have been rolling pretty hard here oh yeah we uh i guess came out of the rock and roll over cycle yep and that wrapped up let's see the recording cycle for rock and roll over uh so they finished that in October of 76 and released that in November. And uh, we're getting into 1977 at this they point. They toured that. We talked about that on the last episode. They mm-hmm. wind up the Rock and Roll Over Tour in Tokyo, Japan on April 4th. Right. With all of the uh, the, the shenanigans. Uh, well, not shenanigans. All the, uh, the, the, the plane stories and what went wrong when they landed and everything, too. Yeah. Yeah. Some, but that was, a, that was a major, you know, milestone moment in the in the career of the band um but coming into the love gun now they're uh i guess they've spent really only a little a, a month basically the month of april i guess they've returned home mm-hmm. before returning to the studio on may 2nd according to the notes i have yep uh they are not at electric lady they're at the record plant in new york city with eddie kramer I don't think he was real keen on that studio because he had helped build the, the Electric Lady studio. But I don't know the uh, rationale or reasoning that put us in this. I was about to ask. Us, I said us like we were there. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're, we're no different than yeah. football fans. And when yeah. football fans, like when a team wins, we won. So. Rah, rah, rah. Right. <laughs> Get go roll all night. Go balls. We beat Bama. We beat Bama. Me, not me physically, but you know the royal we. There doesn't seem to be. I cannot, you know, find a lot of information about the actual recording process on this record. I know it. That's what uh, we were kind of talking about. That uh, leading up to us recording is that there's not a whole lot of uh, studio information with uh, Love Gun. Just, Everything that I've seen. Uh, Basically just says that it went smoothly, and then the only other bit of recording information that I've ran into was I found some stuff talking about uh, how they went over budget. Yeah, they went over budget by about $20,000 from what yeah. I understand. So this album cost $100,000 to produce, which was a pretty large sum in that time. Yeah. But I That's think that was becoming... today, even. It, well... I don't think so much today. I don't. Well, yeah, maybe today. I don't know. 
I just know that uh, it doesn't sound like it, they spent $100,000 on it to me. I think overall, this whole album sounds very thin uh, compared to uh, Rock and Roll Over. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. Uh, it, this sounds more almost like uh, it almost jumps back to the kind of that kind of thin sound of Dress to Kill. But it lacks the punch that Dress to Kill had. And uh, part of See, that I might be with uh, the place they chose to record it, too. They didn't have the big open spaces that they had for Rock and Roll Over. Yeah. I, I don't know if do I would it. agree with the uh, with it not having as much bite as Rock and Roll Over. Rock, I mean, uh, Dress to Kill. Um, because Dress to Kill, to me, still feels way more thin than Love Gun. Love Gun, to me, still has a certain amount of warmth. I mean, even from the intro of um, I Stole Your Love, the fuzz that's on Paul's guitar has a certain warmth to it, where Dress to Kill was a lot more cut, dry, and just kind of attacky. Well, let's let's just jump on this, and then let's just run this song by song. Is that cool with you guys? Sounds good to me. Since okay. we don't have a lot to go with, you, and, and you're starting right at a perfect point there. <laughs> right. Well, um, no, I was more or less just commenting on recording stuff. There, there, I feel like there's we can still talk a little bit more on that, but that was just at least my opinion of like the Sonics overall is, yeah, maybe they didn't, it doesn't sound like they spent that much money on it that they did. Well, I see. I disagree. I think that going into, well, let's, like I said, we'll just start. Okay. I stole your love. I mean, that was something that jumped out. You know, I listened closely and I'm, I'm, and to be fair, I'm, I'm comparing it again to rock and roll over, but I'm also kind of going ahead of the curve here and I'm comparing it to uh, what we'll get to on another episode, which right. is Paul's solo album. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I'm starting to notice a very distinctive style to way to the way Paul plays. Mm-hmm. But on this, the guitar is really not got the uh, as much, I guess, crunch distortion or whatever right. as it did on. You know, the guitars sound really fat and powerful on Rock and Roll Over. And here, it's more of kind of a, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm saying I, I can tell it's intentionally so. It just, you know, it has a cleaner sound. A little and, bit, yeah. Does it? Uh, was the record plant uh, where they recorded the first album to? Mm-mm. With the record plant in, in uh, New York City, what's that normally uh, associated with outside of this record? Oh, Second thing in the other examples. You know, a thousand records. I mean, it's just a bunch. But the, there was also a, re- a West Coast record plant, too. Okay. But, um, and I think that's the more famous or more notable of gotcha. the two. But um, at any rate, you know, this song is a killer song, in yeah. which way you turn it. I Stole Your Love, I think, is a, just a great riff. I think it has a, a I, you know, and I think it was intentionally so. If I, I might have read this somewhere because it's in my head, but um, the riff kind of lifts from Deep Purple's Burn. I can hear that. And, um, you know, obviously, if you're, you're going to steal, steal from the greats. And, exactly. And, and we've talked about before how Paul is a stylist. He can take other people's ideas and tear him up and reassemble him into his own very well and he does that on a couple of tracks on this album but um and i can picture the way you play uh i stole your love as opposed to how like richie blackmore would play uh burns i'm oh, trying to figure out how yeah, to play yeah. both riffs and uh there's well, a lot you of you being a guitar player would notice that before i would but um 
I think I think this it's a strong lead track on this album. I think it's a great song. I think this is Peter Chris's best recorded moment. I think the drum track on this is really kind of overlooked and underrated. If you really pay attention to what he's doing, he's doing some pretty cool stuff. Oh yeah, how it falls right back to that this, jazz vibe. Yeah, how sophisticated any of this is, I can't say. But I mean, it just sounds cool. You know, he's got the it's the, an attitude. It, it, he's 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 you know he rolls in on the toms on the on the opening riff you know and then, and then he's doing the, the double slap on in between the verses you know i needed someone you needed someone too but i but i you know and i love and, paul's vocal on it too speaking of attitude yeah and it's got that yeah the class you know again one thing i like about paul stanley's vocal in this era is just it's just so sassy and strong and it's not what he would try to do in the 80s where it became more almost for lack of a better term operatic you know a a proper quote-unquote singer here he's not that he's a good singer he's got a lot of soulful emotion in it it's you know that like you said sassy kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh this is also very similar to uh i want you it's got the uh the trade-off lead it starts yeah. with paul and goes into ace yep so it almost harkens back to rock and roll over in that sense but uh you know i just think this this is might be the best song on the album Come, I, comes I, right I, out the gate super strong it's, like a, that. it's really good and i'm not saying that the guitars sound bad by saying they don't have the same presence um you know it it may be that um you know if to deliver that at its maximum punch you have to have it at a certain you know they have to come out at a certain way i don't know i'm not you know maybe the the room is it it's a whole lot of well, factors with these just, scenarios i mean i just think overall i think it could have probably still even in the in the way that the guitars are set if they're not as fuzzed out if they're not as distorted that you know there it could have had a a, a yeah, I keep harking back to Rock and Roll Over. Right. Rock and Roll Over, I think, is their best sounding album sonically. I agree with that too. And, and see, for me at least, like it, I've kind of teased it on the show off and on. It's like Love Gun, top to bottom, is probably my number one favorite record. Mm-hmm. Like from album cover to costume and stage design, even down to production. And I'm curious if one of the things you're hearing is the acoustic. Because one of the things they really started implementing a lot on this record even was acoustic guitars throughout the whole record kind of backing it up. And in I Stole Your Love, specifically after it comes out of the chorus and it's that alternate backup, the I stole your love, stole your love. During that part, you hear the acoustic a little bit more present. So I wonder if you're just catching a little bit of the frequencies of that, and that's what's well, leading to feeling like it's a bit more of a cleaner guitar tone. Well, I mean, for you, we don't. It, it stands to reason you would be able to hear it more if the electrics were cleaner. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I it just you know, I just think. But no, that, for for me though, I stole your love. No, actually, probably my number one Paul song for yeah. for like official Kiss releases. This is a great one. It's not you know. It's, I don't think my number one Paul song, of course, is Mr. Speed. But yeah, uh, that might be my number one Kiss song. Period. But this was a strong one. I love this song. I think it's always been a uh, you know they they use it as a set opener in the in the in the uh, ensuing tour, but. Um, this is a strong, strong track. I think that, um, I don't know. I think that it just, 
Peter's really driving the whole thing here. Oh, totally. I think it drives it more than anyone probably recognizes just for the fact that, you know, I do think the guitars sound so kind of thin, but this is, this is my complaint over the whole album as far as the, the sound of the guitars and stuff. It just, it doesn't have that muscled up presence that rock and roll ever had. And I wonder if that was a conscious decision to have a more commercial appeal. I don't think it was a conscious decision for commercial appeal. I think it was ego and strong arming from Paul because I notice a lot of sonic similarities between this and Paul's solo album. And there was also notes that I ran across that was saying that Kramer was recommending like Peter sing one or two of Paul's songs and Paul just would not even let that like yeah, come that, to be. That was so so it does sound like, you know, every since everyone's egos were getting boosted up a little bit more, that Paul may have had a bit more control over the overall sonics if we just compare it to his record that's a, that makes sense because we talk about rock and roll over and how uh big the guitar sounds were on that and uh, i think that kind of translates more so into uh ace ace's record but we'll probably get into all those details whenever we cover mm-hmm. that era as well well let's uh let's keep it rolling here we'll look at christine 16 a song that could not be done today no, no a song that in retrospect, probably doesn't age well, but you know, are we going to throw out the "it was different in the '70s" it was caveat? In the 70s. That's all you can you, do. You, well, it absolutely was different in the '70s. It was a different time. It was a different era with a whole different vibe. And I mean, you know, if you look at the Los Angeles groupie scene of the late or the early '70s, it's like these are all teenagers, young teenage girls. You know, and I don't know that. The appeal to the rock stars is that they were so young, so much as it was the opposite. It was that they were so young yet womanly. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, and, right. And, uh, you know, th- that was probably part of the deal. But th- regardless, this song, I mean, you know, here we go. We got Humbert and Lolita here, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, the. the the lyrics on this song, I mean, it just, I can't listen to it and not laugh. I know. It's Especially because it's the, just so. The talky bit right before the solo. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't usually say things. I mean, just right the first line. I don't usually say things like this to girls your age. Like that alone just kind of sends shivers yeah. up my spine. You're yeah. like, please yeah. shut up. Even as a yeah. teenager, just hearing it for the first time, just went like, that's weird. <laughs> But no, but then it gets even better. But when I saw you coming out of school <laughs> that day, Meanwhile, you just Jesus pick- Christ, you're like riding, like leering around the school. It's like, and for, are picture- you in a white van with a trench coat on? No. Jesus Christ. Just, just picture Gene Simmons in full costume and makeup when it's bat wings. Yeah. Just like when I saw you coming out of school. <laughs> With a backpack or some shit like that. No, he's not. uh, Like, even Gene recognizes that's a weird line now, because I think during, like, the uh, the Rock the Nation tour or something they did in, like, the mid-2000s, they were playing it live. They changed the the talk bit. When when it gets to the talking bit, he was like, I usually don't say things like this to girls your age, but when I saw you, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, (laughs) I had to have you. Like, he he did change it a little bit. Like, that somehow... that that's somehow softens the fact that the whole song is still about a 16-year-old. Look, right. in, in my opinion, 
cutting out the line, when I saw you coming out of school that day, I knew I had to have you. To me, it does soften it a little bit. No, it doesn't. No. I'm, just, I'm just hearing everybody. 15, 16, not even, you know. I, no, I mean, Chuck, you could hey, Chuck Berry did it first. Sweet little 16. Yeah, I was going to say. I was going to say. There you go. I'm sure that that but, had an influence in it. You know, Christine 16 is a cool coupling. And, mm. you know, it is a great pop song. This is. Oh, uh, great little piano bits in it. It's Gene's, just catchy. Gene's just got that knack. His, he's got that Beatle influence and has a knack mm-hmm. to write a, a catchy pop song. I think that that's you know, uh, his strength, really, as a songwriter. And I mean, he comes up with this off-the-wall stuff that, lyrically, but musically, he can he can st- stitch together a cool little snappy pop song. It's this so was, uh, awkward live when they do it, too, because it's just Gene going, bump. But up with no piano, but yeah. but up. <laughs> yeah, it, but you know, it, it, interestingly, it was the first single off the album, and it peaks at twenty five, according to the information I have. I'm surprised it didn't do better. It seems like it would have been a, a you know, a, I don't know though. I mean, the times being different. Um, to jump is, to jump ahead just a little bit, if we're just talking about first singles though. I feel like if Tomorrow and Tonight had been right, the first we're, single. Yeah, don't jump ahead. Okay, we're gonna get, okay, okay. Okay. I'm, on, I'm okay. totally on point with you, dude. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, but this is one of the songs he famously demoed with Van Halen Brothers. Yes. Yep. Have and y'all I, ever heard the demo of this? I have, and Eddie Van Halen plays that solo exactly, you know, with the it's, that same notation too. Yeah, it's very much the exact same thing, and it, you know, it doesn't sound like the Van Halen Brothers what you would expect, you know, because you have it in your head a particular way. And I yeah. don't know if they were playing to his um, direction. Had to, they know? had to have because well, it, you don't know. I mean, it, it's it's hard to say. Um, I mean, well, you know, even take it, you know, this way, Cap. I mean, if someone were to look at, you know, your bass playing, you know, say you played bass in with the Kelsey Ryan band instead of playing guitar. If you played bass with that and then looked at the fill-ins bass stuff, it might be a little bit hard for them to determine, oh, well, which way is Cap truly a bass player in because it's such different styles. Right. I think they were just trying to play to serve the song, this unwritten song that this guy Gene Simmons from Kiss has given us the privilege to help co-write with them. That might be true, too. Why well, they don't get co-write credit. They just help them. That's why I'm saying if it's under his direction, I mean, this they don't. There's no co-write credit here, so no, yeah. they didn't meander at all and say what you want about Ben. Ha- what you want about Ben Halen? They know melody. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Gene so sure does. Gene, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is Gene's song. I mean, this is clearly. I think this is all Gene. So. Yeah. Um, and, I, I suspect that that demo was probably largely under his direction, including the solo part, and he just carried over and replicated it in the. Yeah, sure. Recording for the Love Gun album. It's Eddie Kramer on the pianos too. Yeah, and it's also funny because uh, we get it sampled in Funky Cold Medina. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it popped up, and, and 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 I can remember when that was a hit, and I think I was probably the only one in the world that well, I wasn't the only one in the world, but right, I know right. it seemed like I was the only one in the world at the time that knew what that was because by that point, Kiss had not, you know, they weren't cool anymore mm-hmm. you know, right. and it was a cool and, little bit because it's the bop bop yeah. bottom pop 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 yeah and it includes like the little drum yeah. bit too so and, it, and, and my ears pricked up right away i was like hey <laughs> you know I, I don't remember how old i was i was a teenager but you know i'm like going that's that's kids you know? <laughs> no, i remember and, uh, and the kids at school were like we don't care yeah <laughs> Of course, I wasn't old enough, you know, when the first song first came out. But I remember first making that connection, like hearing it, paying attention to it, and hearing it, and be like, 
Mom! Yeah. Mom, did you know? She's yeah. like, yes, yes, yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't see a penny of it either. Oh, I, yeah, who knows? I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, Got Love for Sale. Yes. Uh, originally titled Have Love Will Travel, which is what they're singing in the chorus. Yeah. I think that's a better title. It probably is, but I don't think this is that great of a song. I, I mean, I like it. But all I can think of when I hear it is again sleazy Gene, you know. But I'm, I, I, you know, got love for sale. I think of like Dan Aykroyd on Saturday Night Live, you know, Fred Garvin, male prostitute. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, you know, like you know, we talk like, about like how she- much. How much business are you getting there, buddy? You know? <laughs> I just I don't I don't get it. It's just it's just corny. It's not it's like it's corny to the point like Christine sixteen is corny, but it's it's funny in that kind of dark way that you're like you almost feel guilty for laughing at now, you know. Right. But it, you know, all things being even in its context, you you know, it's like Lolita. I mean it's darkly humorous, <laughs> you know. God love for sales just Silly, silly. It's just it's sleazy to the point where it's not even. I don't know, but I, but I think the weakest bit in the song is the lyrics because musically, I think it's right on point. I think it's a great little guitar riff that. Another great example of them using the acoustic layers, you yeah. know, for the. Yeah. Blah, yeah. Blah. But I, and, and when I hear stuff like that, and I was gonna, I was gonna references in, 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 in later tracks here but stuff like that to me seems like that stuff they learned under Ezrin yeah exactly and it would have served better under his direction yeah his production I think I just think it would have you know that's there's another example where it just doesn't it sounds like um, it just doesn't have that same kind of resonance and I'm also looking at like albums by their contemporaries at the time like mm-hmm. if you look at like Aerosmith's Rocks that album's just got this great shimmer across it and it's so it just sounds so great and it's mm-hmm. so well done and I'm like you know how do you how do you got that coming out at the same time and hear what you're doing and going gee that's not quite the same you know and I understand it's different musicianship and what have you I, I'm, I'm taking all that into account but just the production value here it just seems like it could have been so much more rich and full and it's just very tight and dry it's very and interesting and it doesn't you know to me I just think it 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 it's this whole album sounds production wise like a step backwards but. Again, we're talking about again one of their seminal albums. This is this is a very big album for them. But and you know, kind of thinking on a little bit more, like just trying to process and think because I'm just trying to mentally compare, you know, the sonics between like Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun. I think what they what happened is Rock and Roll Over almost still has a bit of a punk rock mentality to the sound, if that makes any sense. Even though they had the really big drums and stuff like that, the guitars. Or basically mixed in a way that almost kind of is reminiscent of, you know, the contemporary, you know, underground rock and roll records at the time. This one almost feels a lot more smoothed out and like a unit, if that makes any sense. Where it's like the guitars don't ever overbear the drums and the bass never gets in the way of the vocal. Well, where where think... sometimes in Rock and Roll Over, a guitar could override some drums or a bass line could get lost in well, the mix somewhere. I think that's, again, that's why I think that all of this is done f- with commercial consideration. 
I, I don't doubt that for a second. What, I mean, is they it commercial consideration or just uh, yeah, like trying? Absolutely. Or just like progressing the sound even more? Well, there's a little bit of both, I'm sure. But I'm, I mean, they had their eye on the prize. I mean, Kiss was definitely striving for commercial acceptance. It, it's yeah. not a. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying they weren't. And, I'm just curious to I don't think, think if, the, they, if it went all the way down to the production of the record. Well, I like think you're talking have, about it was uh, this is the era of Super Kiss. Well, not starting quite, to come, starting to become Super Kiss. But I think that they were looking at it from like okay destroyer was a you know at the time you know we talked about this in the previous episode the destroyer seemed like too much of an anomaly it was too left field so Mm -hmm. let's go back to our meat and potatoes roots but that proved to be almost too forceful and too strong to find any you know any ground in radio and there's hardly now they're trying to do like a balance point where they're doing something that has a commercial vibe that isn't going to be too Right. You know? mm-hmm. So it's like it's like you know it's like they're they're uh, they're kind of not flexing their muscle as much as they're able, right? Because in, in a concession towards having a, a commercial appeal. Now we we, we that doesn't necessarily relate to got loved for sale, but you made a point about the those little kind of the acoustic guitars, the acoustic things and yeah, stuff. And so I, the, I, you know, those, that's, that's some cool stuff in that track. I think I agree with you musically, but I think given yeah. the demos that exist, I think there were other tracks that could have been considered for this that would have been a better fit for the album. Interesting. Um, but yeah, there's more bells and whistles on this album overall than say rock and roll over for sure too. Yeah. There's stuff that's going on, but it just doesn't sound quite as, Big as big. Oh, I think it sounds big. That, I'll have to always. I'm not trying to argue. It's just I, I can't let that fly. I can't let those hair words flow without me saying something. It just this this record just feels so big and like bombastic to me. I mean, especially when we get over to something like you know, almost human. You know, when that intro kicks in. I mean, it's like that's huge. It's, it's it is. It's, it's a big record. I mean, it's got it's got. I think we'll get to that. In yeah, a yeah, yeah. Let's, let's actually let's, let's go to shock me because I feel like that's a good example of the heavy guitar tones. Uh, I think this has got more crunch than some of the other tracks. It's certainly got more crunch than uh, I Stole Your Love does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, not nearly there's as many, kind of a, huh? I was going to say no bells and whistles on this track really other than like say background vocals it's, and stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a stepping up, you know, literally into the spotlight. Um, his first recorded vocal with the band. Yep. Um, it's got a great drum track in this as well. Oh, yeah. It's one of my all-time you know, favorite drum performances that Peter does. Just that little ta 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 I love that. He's, he, I mean, there. and this, I'm sure, is pretty much all, I mean, I might be wrong, but I'm assuming that in in the recording process, this is pretty much all Ace and Peter. Um, and you know, and I think that makes sense because especially since you're saying the guitars had a bit more crunch on this one, we do know that Paul starts, I stole your love. Yeah. So I think he may have a bit more of that muted guitar tone where Ace still comes in with that more kind of crunch. Yeah. And you know, Ace worked really well. Obviously we know now with Eddie Kramer, Uh He, he enjoyed the, the partnership they had. And I'm sure that fed into the success of this as well. I mean, this could have potentially been a, a not strong song. Some of the lyrics are a little corny. That's fine. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, and especially because Ace 
I mean, as much as we love him, call a spade a spade. He's not a good vocalist, but he does great with his vocals. Right. Well, I mean, he doesn't have to be. He's got to be Ace. Yep. Um, Mm -hmm. I think when he applies himself, anything Ace wants to do, he can do. I mean, in in the context of being Ace Fraley. Right. But that leads into the whole thing, the whole entire Kiss thing. It's like, uh, I had a friend of mine who saw Kiss this week, and he took his girlfriend, and he was saying that she got it. Yeah. And, uh, hello, Woodsy. And so I was like, yeah, in order to get Kiss, you got to kind of contextualize it. And then you also got to acknowledge, though, that Kiss only exists in their own context. If you try to apply that context to other bands or other bands try to apply that context to them, it just doesn't really fit. And it's weird how that works. And it's weird. I mean, there's so few bands that can do that. And that's what makes this band special, particularly in this era. And it also makes the individual components of this band special in this era. And in this case, Ace, you know, I don't know that a song like shock me would have worked and you know, prior, you know, Gene had sung Ace's songs. Mm-hmm. I can't see Gene singing this song. No, it just—I don't know why. It just doesn't seem to fit to me. But then again, had he done it, we bite we, me. Well, <laughs> I'm just saying, if had he done it, we might not have known any different, and we wouldn't be able to say that. But um, you know, this becomes Ace's signature song more so than anything he has written before, simply because he had the lead vocal on yep. it. Yep. And now, uh, do do we believe the uh, the urban legend of he had to lay on his back with the lights off in order to do his vocal take? Ah, you know that may be true. I seem like I read somewhere in in, in mm-hmm. making my notes for this that that might be conflated with other events. Okay, of, I don't know. He brings of him that up recording in something else, but he, he brings that up in his uh, memoirs. Though. Yeah, it's but I don't. I know it. That's, that's why I also said legend. I'm sure. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. If, if that, Ace that, looked you right in the eyes and said, "Yeah," I'd still be saying, "So the legend of right." <laughs> well, I'm sure that probably happened at some point, but you know, and it. it I don't. I don't see that as being that strange of a. Oh, it's not. Idea, it's still just an interesting little tidbit in my eyes. I think that um, you know, with with stuff like that, I'd rather believe the myth. You know, because the myth is always probably going to exceed the le- the, the the reality. But, right. You know. Um, okay. Well, let's let's. Anything else to add to great shock solo? Me? Great you know, solo. Of course, it's going to be because he's <laughs> well, got yeah. he's got free reign on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think this is Ace's best lead break on this album. Not best, but it's still a great. Le- it is I, a good I still, solo. I always hear the da 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 the the kick in with it with like what uh, Cap was talking about that little yeah, uh, drum yeah. skip bit that little walk up to it and you know the yeah. bends and shit. That's well, one of those single Ace like solos. The two of them working together, and and it seems like you know. You feel that kind of a, it's like a, you know, that, that kind of band thing that they're working together. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of that in Kiss, I don't think. That um, And some of the playing is just kind of fucked up, too, in, in a way. It's very unorthodox. Even the riff, it kind of does like the... Like that part, it has to pull on that top string to nail it like that, which is like, who does that, you know? Yeah, well, Ace really does. He does, you know? And that's... And that's that part, killer. And that part in the solo where it's just like, uh, it just kind of goes like, again, it's like nobody else would have come up with that either, I don't think. Um, moving on here, tomorrow and tonight, 
Paul knocks this one out of the park. Now, the reason I didn't say this was my number one favorite Paul song, this might be my number two, but the reason being is I can t- I can take that step back and go, okay, the lyrics are a little bit dumb. Like it's, <laughs> it, it is a little on the nose, but oh my God, is this not a fun song? It's a great song. And it's, I love it. I don't understand why this wasn't a single. I don't, especially because, for 1977. Yeah, it just seems like this would have been, it's danceable. It, without being, it's not in any way disco. Mm-hmm. But it it's, could have been a flagship tune for uh, Casablanca at the time, too, I yeah, think. Yeah, but it would have fit right in. I think they could, it just... It, it's a hip-shaking, hand-clapping, backup-singing good time. It's R&B, again, the mm-hmm. R&B influence. Paul pulls a lot from R&B. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about this on other episodes. And this really illustrates it probably more so than any other song in their canon. This is a... You know, he acknowledges the uh, influence of Mott the Hoople's Golden Age of Rock and Roll on this, the kind yeah. of the structure of it. And I can see that. That's pretty obvious. Now, you know, when you hear it, you make, you make that conscious connection. Otherwise, I never would have thought of that. Or like uh, the Rolling Stones, Can't You Hear Me Knocking uh, that, with that, that oh, yeah, sliding yeah, riff yeah, that he yeah, does. Kinda, da, yeah. da, 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 da. That, you know, who knows? But I just don't understand why this wasn't released as a single. No, I agree. And, and it and seems like it would either. have been a, a, a pretty huge... And this is one of the few songs where they've got outside backing vocals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the song also really shines and shows what great musician work. Uh, when you listen to the uh, the deluxe edition that came out in 2018, uh, there's a Tomorrow Tonight instrumental demo mm-hmm. near the end of that. And you can really hear exactly what the guitars are playing and yeah. like the different things. And it's like, damn, they. you can tell they put some songwriting time into this track. The drum track on that demo is like really weird too. It kind of throws you off at first if you've heard the original Tomorrow and Tonight a bunch. Yeah. Well, the demo on Tomorrow and Tonight, it sounds so, again, it sounds like it was very much in place. There's not a variation to the finished track. It makes me wonder who's playing on the demo. Well, I'd say it's very much like the next song's demo. Okay. Well, Mm mm-hmm. Let okay the title track, Love Gun. Yes, yeah. <laughs> not, I still love it. I'm not a fan of this song. I'm not either. I'm I not st- either. I still like. It's a silly. It's like a lot of the songs. It's silly, but I love it. I love the arrangement of it. Yeah. I like the arrangement. I like musically. There's some cool stuff going on here, and this goes into what I was talking about. Aces big moment on this is mm-hmm. on the descending end no the no. ending the da, 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 descending, da, da, right. it's, it's just a, it's a very simple thing but it works really well and, he, and just the way he's playing that whole lead across the end but they've got it covered under the I know the chorus and they get rid of that in the live versions which I've always loved about the live versions it just mm-hmm. I don't I just but this whole song I mean it's a tired rip off of the Albert King song I guess it was written, written by Booker T and the MGs if I've got that correct but popularized by Albert King and it was stolen by every band in the world and the carcass had been already picked apart and now all that's left are the bones and that's what they're trying to make the song out of and I mean okay you can always flesh out the bones I guess but man I mean for those that uh it's been done it's been done and done and done yet again you know I mean for those that might not know what Albert King song you were alluding to The Hunter okay yeah very much so and you know it's just uh, it's just like almost like a bubblegum version of The Hunter and 
I don't know, man. I just think, you know. I got you in the sights of my gun and everything. He's put together yeah. this great instrumental track, but he doesn't have a lyric for it. And the lyrics are just dumb. <laughs> They're just, I mean, I'm, girl, I'll make you feel okay. <laughs> That's the best you can come up with? I mean, you know, I, I say this only because, I, you know, again, tomorrow and tonight, I mean, it might have some dopey lyrics, but it's still pretty cool and clever in the way he puts his stuff together. I Saw Your Love is really well-written lyrically. Real, and it's, like, it's almost like the lyrics were an afterthought on this song. And somehow, it shined out enough that they decided that this is the title track. I don't. I, none of this makes sense to me now. I mean, only a little kid, you don't think about this. But you know, now being a full blown nerd, and I can go full nerd on this. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't think this is the strongest. I think I don't. It's the second weakest song on the album to me. Uh, well, again, second maybe not. Weakest, maybe not. I was going to say. Was, you know, again, the, the the instrumental track is great. I'm, as far as the the music itself, the construction of it, the, the I will dr- say drum part, amazing the drum part. intro to a song. Just that single note. Bah, 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 I want to know. Bah, 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 I want to know. Who created that part? I have to say it's Paul, and I the reason too. I think it's Paul is because he attributes one of his one of the maybe you can count on one hand how many times Paul says something negative about himself. Uh, one of the things that he does say around that time is that he was getting bad demoitis, which mm-hmm. would mean that he would go to like Electric Lady and cut like these super produced demos, right, right. bring it to the band, and then get all pissy <laughs> if, if they, they wanted to alter like, it. Yeah. yeah, so that's yeah, why the demo for this song sounds very fucking similar to the main one that came out so i think that paul's ego was just really hitting hard would, at this time i don't even know if it, i guess you could say ego but i mean if you got a clear vision you got to yeah you i've know, been there uh, too ego but. and vision are, are, are interlinked but you know if you've got a very strong vision and a very clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish but if it's a song like this that we also just spent the past couple minutes on saying it wasn't even it felt like that strong or that fleshed out in well, comparison I think musically to it did you know yeah I mean, you're right you're right and and um you know let's uh, i'm kind of we referenced the um deluxe edition that came out and it had the demos on it it has uh there's one where paul's kind of like explaining yeah, how yeah. It completely unnecessary too. but the actual <laughs> demo to me has more presence on the guitars those octave chords that he's chosen mm-hmm. the thing Dun. they soar greater on than on the finished track you can hear it, it's a lot more pronounced on the demo i think you know i don't know why that's it doesn't seem to be as as noticeable on the finished track it those those little effects you're talking about you know what it reminds me of the effects he had on tonight you belong to me think about the chorus well, the oh kind of vibe well, he had on the I guitars with say, that there's the yeah he's got the sustained guitar notes yeah that's mm-hmm. that, that's something that's very much a paul thing that you find that yeah i'm talking about just those kind of the octave notes though in the in the I don't know what the part. I'm not going to say that. But he shows it. No, he shows it in that that demo track and or in the teaching track or whatever. And, okay. and then you hear it in the demo, and it you hear it very clear. But then you go to the actual album track, and it it's not as pronounced. I know it's part you're talking about. It's an E minor. Um, but yeah, those sustain <laughs> notes that he's doing underneath it, and that's real pronounced on the demo track. That isn't on the album track. Those sustain 
those single sustain notes. And he does that a lot. Like you said on uh, tonight, you belong to me. I, I noticed that right away. I jumped off. Um, and to uh, give Ace Fraley his full credit, the, uh, the ascending and descending guitar riff saying. is totally ace. Cause that wasn't in the demo. Ace, Ace has really put some cool stuff on this and, and, you know, and I get the way it's all structured. It makes sense, you know, but I, I, you know, they did the remix later on, on the smashes, trashes in yeah. head or whatever it's called we'll, 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 yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll that. reach that one, one day eventually but on the remix of that that's one of the strengths of that one remix is that when he hits to that part it takes all that vocal away and all you get is the guitar all the way out mm. and that you know that's the it, part you're waiting for that's and it's such a great guitar track i mean ace was such a great guitar player i mean you know no he wasn't eddie van halen but eddie van halen couldn't play ace Frehley. exactly and except for that christine feel, 16 you know, except for Christine. <laughs> <laughs> damn out of all that's the it. times we rip on van halen he actually gets a really good yeah. one in on it Touché. good one God, that was no, good there's no, there's so many. <laughs> I'm just saying, great though, ace that, moments that, here. my point of this is to say is like people like to argue about the musicianship and skill of any given musician, and I don't think that you know you miss the point. It's like you know Keith Moon was not a great technical drummer, but he was the greatest rock and roll drummer. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, because he was just he was so manic and wild. And rock and roll is about about the feel. It's not about the technical proficiency. And once you get to that point where you're focusing on the technical proficiency and the musicianship and stuff, you've lost your balls. You might as well just go home, dude. We could do like you know? a whole series and, on how much of a fucked up soup the Who was. And and oh yeah, and you know, and when I say balls, that's not even a sexist thing because I mean, you know, if you gotta put it as to the balls of your feet, that's fine too. Because to me, like the Runaways have. More more balls than say dream theater yeah i agree, I agree <laughs> with you that know, people want to snidely go they're teenage girls they couldn't even play yeah you know what they still rocked a lot fucking harder than the shit you like so shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> they could anyway. hang harder than you could <laughs> yeah. but uh moving right along here uh we go into peter's uh obligatory moment right <laughs> this is like this feels like the most obligatory Peter Chris tune really? even outside even outside of uh, Baby Driver really? from the last record. I love Baby Driver. We talked about that in the yeah. Rock and Roll Over episode, and I think it's a you know a underrated track, and a lot of people disagree with me, and they're wrong. But <laughs> Hooligan, <laughs> Hooligan's fine. Hooligan's fine. It's a mediocre track. I think they could have came up with something stronger. I mean, you know, this is uh, he, Peter had his. Uh, writing partner, I guess, was Stan, Stan Penridge. Has yeah. he, he got his credit on this? He actually does. He's yeah. got his okay. name on this. Okay. And, uh, you know, which is to say, probably Stan Penridge wrote it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Come on, chicken fried roast beef, man. Uh, <laughs> apparently, there was, from what I came up with while I was doing my notes on this is that the engineer Corky Stasiak, who's back uh, I was say, he's been on a ton of these he claims that there was an issue with the lyrics that uh, uh, Eddie Kramer thought whatever lyric they were trying to use wasn't wasn't good he didn't like whatever they were trying to do and right. I don't know what it was but um, Corky Stasiak just kind of tossed off how about if you tried this and they used it. Okay. Now, he doesn't get credit, I don't think, but no. they used his, you know, he was he like, sure that's, that's my claim to fame. He's like, I, you know, I. 
Yeah, I, I added some, you know, impromptu lyrics, and I can't remember where I think he says, but I can't remember it. I didn't write that down. It kind of feels like it should have been like a Gene riff at one point, because you know how like Gene songs always have that little bounce to them. Yeah, I don't, you know, you don't know how much this got worked over by the band once they received it. Uh, you know, I haven't heard any existing demos of this. Is there one no. that you're aware of that exists? No, off the top of my know head. Of. So, but we, man, I, honestly, I think this is in. I mean, not that he got a lot of songs to start with, but I think this is in my top three favorite Peter songs. I, I think this suits him better than a Beth. Like, like the lyrics to this song, the vibe to this song, you almost kind of got like the, the New York street cat kind of vibe from them. the lyrics are definitely very much Peter's yeah. persona. Like this and dirty living even like I love dirty living. So it's well, like, I feel like those two suit Peter a lot better than a baby driver and a Beth do. Oh, see, I, I disagree about the baby driver. I, but know, I, I had get, to throw that in there to, for you. That's fine. <laughs> you um, and your thin guitar tones. Well, thin. Uh, I think that, um, you know what? The, what kind of sticks in my head from this, even from hearing it as a kid, was this comes from, and I don't know how conscious this was, but it was an era where there was a, you know, the. Uh, it seems like every era has its sort of uh, nostalgia era. It's like a nostalgia vibe that goes on for a time, you know, past, you know, as as people come of age or whatever. And in the seventies, everything was the nostalgia thing was all for the 50s. Right. You had American Graffiti and Happy Days and Sha Na Na and this sort of thing going on. And I think Hooligan kind of patches into that in a certain sense. It has, I can see that. It has that sort of, a, you know, it, it you know has that sort of kind of... Kind of like a similar feel. Kind of like a feel that he would take into his solo record, I right. think. Well, it, it, it's, again, he, Peter always had more of the R&B influence on stuff like this. so, And that's that's coming along strong. But again, it, I wonder how much work went into this uh, with the other band members. Yeah, it's interesting. Just out of school when I was 22. Yeah, because he did <laughs> not talk about a whole, a whole lot in, uh, in his book either. He doesn't talk like anything love gun related you don't hear a whole lot about it and through any of the members you know uh, recollections or anything yeah. like that either well, that's why this is such a curiosity of a record because it seems like these songs just sort of appear out of nowhere and they didn't really have a lot of staying power outside of shock me really shock me is in love gun love gun i stole your love i mean there's jams on yeah, here I guess without they a still, doubt they, they would come back to i stole your love i mean and, and just considering how big of a record this would prove to be for them mm-hmm you know, and then Christine sixteen got a breath of second air when they did it on on uh, I mean Plaster Caster uh, rather when oh they yeah. played it on uh, MTV Un- unplugged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well let's uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's see, almost human. Yeah, that one's uh, I like it. I, I love how I love it musically, but it's also like a weird. It's, it's one of the weirder Kiss tunes for me too, especially in this time period. Yeah, bottom, even though I love this record, bottom three. Uh, if I can remember correctly, I think uh, my stepfather Eric. He actually, this is one of his favorites on the record. Well, it's a, it's. I like the song a lot, and to me, this seems like this could have been the title track. Almost Human just seems like yeah, I can a see very that Kiss. Ooh, you know, even with the same artwork, it would yeah do. Oh, of course, and and uh, you know, to me. This song would have been better served again under Bob Ezrin. I think uh, so. Gene, I think, is playing the guitar on this. It doesn't, you know, Gene's got this right. kind of slinky feel in his playing. He doesn't play like hard on, full on, whatever. Uh, 
the way the other guys seem to. His he 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 just doesn't have that same kind of attack to the. See, it actually states uh, Gene Simmons for uh, rhythm guitar on Christine Sixteen and Got Love for Sale. Okay. Okay. Well, it just still doesn't feel. I don't. It doesn't feel like it's. A Sir Paul playing the riff on this. I'm almost positive. I would. I, I, can, that I can totally feel that. This. But the question here is, you know, they that solo part is so unlike anything they've ever done ever. Is that the? Was that a reverse take? Yeah, it's got all this reverse mm-hmm. kind of thing Sat going on, noise. and it sounds like they're kind of working off of a of a you know a, a bend or a I'd hate to say a whammy bar it just seems like what kind of guitar would they be using to do that but you know they're Ace in the studio about they can do whatever strats. yeah so it may have been done with that and did Ace do this or did Gene do this mm-hmm. or did they both do this you know and it just frustrates me that there's not a lot of info about that because it's so weird and so different and so curious that it, it, it attracts that attention to me it's like who did this and how what were they doing and how did they put this together yeah. you know because it doesn't stomp like you would think it would like in a way that god of thunder does and it and it has got the potential like the conga to do that. drums and everything in it, it too. Got, yeah, it's got the conga drums. They brought in a guy to play conga drums on it, and it's so. I actually have so, his name, uh, Jimmy Moline. Yeah, <laughs> Moline. So it's it's uh, it's. I think this is a good song. I like it a lot. I think again, I think it would have been better handled with Bob Ezrin. I think he would have pulled more power out of it. But I'd agree with you. It there. would have been more, you know, for lack of a better word, monstrous. Yeah, because it kind of has, like you were talking about, like a God of uh, Thunder uh, aesthetic to it. And I think had they not come through those channels of Bob Ezrin, again, it's another one of those things. I don't think they would have tried or attempted like the backwards solo kind of stuff. Although that's an Eddie Kramer thing, too, though, the backwards uh, solos. That's used a lot on a lot of his records. Well, he, if he, yeah, he may have suggested it, but they they would have been probably less tractable for it if if they had not had experience doing it before. You know, it would have been too weird but right i think this song could have been a lot stronger it's a great song has the potential to be even better and i think this should have been the title track but you know that's uh, just me somebody out there should make an alternate uh almost human uh album cover (laughs) yeah well you wouldn't have to do anything to change i mean everything works put the title up (laughs) in kiss font (laughs) yeah um anything to add to that Eh, not really that's kind of like, uh, I mean, I like it. Uh, the music's solid on it. It's just a weird one for me, and that's not one that I revisit a lot. Yeah, no, that's basically the same here for me. Even though it's favorite Kiss record, I mean, honestly, this may be my least favorite on the record. Oh, interesting. Well, um, let's keep it moving here. We'll go into Plaster Caster. Another mm-hmm. silly love song from Gene in a lot of ways. <laughs> I've, I've written in my notes, Trite. But brilliant. <laughs> I, I really like the song. I think the music's cool. The only thing that ruined it for me was finding out that like they never went to her. Yeah. Okay. Well, no. We need to get background let's, on the. Yeah, let's get, about. You got to get the deep background on that. <laughs> deep. <laughs> um, so there was a groupie click out of Chicago that kind of rose to prominence in the, I guess, the very tail end of the '60s, and they were called the Plaster Casters. Yep. And uh, it was Cynthia Plastercaster was essentially the the lead, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. She has collected a she has a collection. She ha- yeah, and if you want to see anyone's <clears throat> love, Gene liked to use the word love. <laughs> as I know a it. He really did. Euphemism for his P 
penis. Yeah. Anytime you hear Gene Simmons use the word love, he means his his dick. (laughs) So she did plaster casts of rock star penises. Yeah. And that's like everybody. Well, it's not everybody, but she has a a collection, (laughs) you know. But the one person that she did not do, nor did she ever intend to do, nor did she have any interest in ever collecting, was Gene Simmons. And she was not at all flattered by this song. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) Because she felt like Gene was advertising. (laughs) I don't know if she thought Gene or just Kiss in general were advertising. Like, hey, hey, you know. And she's like, no. She's come to like the song. I think she has a greater appreciation now for it. But uh, at the time, I don't think she was at all impressed by it. Yeah, I can only imagine. Right. But, you know, all that aside, yes, they're singing about getting their love Love. plaster casted. Now, when you're a little kid, you don't know that. Right. You know. Their heart. Yeah. It's like, you know, none of that makes any sense when you're a kid. So this is, you know, as a kid, this was kind of a nonsensical song, but um, it's, it's a, Great little again. It's Gene and, and doing pop music, and that's the, the strength of Kiss, particularly that is lost as we will move into the '80s. Is their ability to be great pop songwriters? They're not heavy metal at all. No, no. Quick on the metal band. They, they were not a heavy metal band, and they were a pop band. They were a hard pop, hard pop rock, whatever you want to call it. You mm-hmm. know, And this song is one of those great illustrations of it. And they were very, very good at it. Even if they wrote stupid lyrics musically. It's just, just getting hard. You know, but still, just the melody of it. I'm just yeah, saying, you know, know. You're still you, singing it for days afterwards. Yeah, you you know, this this will stick in your in your brain. It's very bubblegum. It's mm-hmm. in my head right now. And it's <laughs> it's and it's it's put together well. Um you know, again, the demo is virtually identical yep. and, and kind of unremarkable in that sense. I think that the in this case, the album track exceeds the demo, whereas I think the Love Gun demo exceeds the album track kind of a thing. I'd agree. Um, but it's a, it's a great song. And, you know, with apologies to Cynthia Plastercaster, because there was a, you know, a million teenage boys out there that just did not know. Right. <laughs> and as they grew up to be a million uh, middle-aged adults, they all go, hmm. See my love, just ask her. <laughs> ask her. <laughs> How do we get in on that? Um, so now we get to the end of the album. A cover. And then this is... Gender-swapped cover. Yeah, this one. Yeah, this was a weird close. Always a weird closer for me that the or that they made the choice to do this. So why is that, real quick? Because okay, well, what's the track? Oh, then she kissed me. From Which is a, the old? Uh, it's like an old uh, Phil Spector production. Yeah, I forget who the band was that originally did it. Uh, was it the? It was. Was it the Ronettes? That was not going to be my. You first know what? I guess. meant to write that down. I'm almost positive it was them, but, but I yeah, might to, be wrong. But yeah, to answer Alex's question is that uh, when I found out that. Uh, because the first time I heard this song when I was the when Crystals. I was, yeah, crystals, the crystals did it. Okay. Well, yeah. But okay. Yeah, the first time I, heard, I should know that, and I'm ashamed I don't. But yeah, the first time I heard this song was in the movie Goodfellas, where, uh, you know, uh, Henry mm. Hill takes his date through mm. uh, the restaurant, and he's kind of, you know, they're going through the kitchen and all that, and they're playing that, Is that song the in the song background. Is that the song they use in the yep. track? Yeah, that's a, that's a famous scene because it's such a long tracking scene. But yep. Okay. Uh, at the end of the day, though, Kiss is doing. It turned from, of course, the gender bend. It went from he to she. 
this makes no sense to me. I know. First off, so why that, not? Well, it's not bad, but it's not good either. Right. Uh, apparently, Jailhouse Rock was considered too. For some reason, Paul had it in his head that they needed to do a cover on this album. I don't understand why they felt the need. I mean, there, yeah, knowing no that need. we know now there was a wealth of demos out there for them to pull from. What made them feel they had to do a cover song and why? And apparently, Jailhouse Rock was probably the only other seriously considered but, uh, idea from what from the notes I've got from what I found that may or may I've not be that true. Too. That's an odd choice too. Yeah, but I mean, and neither one of these seem to be. But why does this song not really make any sense to you for them to cover? It because it's un, it just okay. It just seems like it's a stretch. You're doing that. You have to go to the stretch to to change the heat of the she. It doesn't feel like anything that Kiss does. No, I could see Kiss even at this point having the brass to go out and attempt to do a Beatles cover for that matter. Uh, it just, or to go for something like when they, you know, they, they bastardized uh, the Hunter. Certainly they could do something else along, you know, along those lines. It just, you know, and instead you've got this kind of dopey kind of pop song with this kind of, you know, schmaltzy syrupy, you know, kind of quasi romantic lyric that, doesn't seem to fly in league with their machismo chest beating. I'm a stud. Look at my okay. pecker and worship. You know, <laughs> I get that. But and, let's also look at things that previously happened on this album and albums before. So we've been praising them for bringing in a lot of R&B and doo-wop. Mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't too far connected from right. that, especially the original. Um, when it when it goes down to being a lot more lovey-dovey and, you know, instead of, you know, vibrato, look at my big dick. I mean, sure, Peter had Beth, but we can even go outside of that and look at Hard Luck Woman and, you know, stuff like that, That where they've also touched on elements of being a bit more romantic and lovey rather than just big machismo stuff. So, for me, and then Phil Spector being such a large name in the music world at that time, and then also working with Bob Ezrin, the more I kind of started thinking about it with branding, then she kissed yeah, That was going to be my next yeah. point. Yeah. I feel like it was it absolutely made sense for that thought process. Well, you also wonder if there wasn't any kind of consideration going into that as it being a potential single. It was never released as a single. You're right. Uh, you know, it, it. but, you know, if you've got something that had already had a proven you know, track record as being a hit before it stands to reason. Well, maybe we could do it again. Yeah, I don't know. Just to me, this just felt. Yeah, but no, I don't know. Just to me, this felt like right in line with the other pop sensibilities that they have been kind of showing off. And in retrospect, just kind of really sitting and thinking on it, I've I've grown to like this cover and this song a little bit more than some of the other stuff that they wound up doing. It's fine, but again, uh, just uh, still feels like an odd choice. For me, uh, especially since they chose to do a cover on this album, too. Which- yeah, I will say the fact Kiss doing a cover at all is very bizarre. Well, yeah. they had done, you know, they were forced to do the, uh, the uh, cover. They, time. Yeah, Kiss in Time on the first album. I, you know, it just seems like. Were they running out of ideas? Because No, like, clearly not. Clearly they weren't, but it just feels that way because... Love Gun, like you were saying, this, is the hunter. and To me, this entire album signifies a shift towards their imminent demise like 
you know, when you start getting to that point where you're like, okay, we got to go outside now and we'll find this song and we'll do it, you know, it's kind of a thing. It shows sort of a lack of confidence maybe in your own material, or maybe it shows a, just or a just overt a sh- confidence that they're just like, we can flippantly do this classic song, <laughs> but, um, it's a shift for better or worse. I don't think it's strong. I don't care for it. I, no, I used to love it when I was a little great. kid. I want, I'm not going to lie. When I was like nine years old or whatever, I, you know, I'd you know, listen to it on the, at my little Fisher Price stereo and <laughs> it was great. But, you know, as and I no, got older, I'm just kind of like, you know, and, and they don't really bring anything to it. No, there's nothing really new that really makes with it, it sound, you know, and it certainly it doesn't. And, and, and going back to my complaint about the production of the entire album, if there's going to be anything that really starkly stands off that fact is the is the you their know, attempt at a Phil Spector production. doing a Phil Spector song and it doesn't have the Phil Spector production. You know, yeah, in no way am I saying this is even because, like in my top twenty because, favorites because Phil Spector killed it. Oh, he <laughs> it. But yeah, no, that was it, just this, too easy. I know. Yeah. It. <laughs> even, even I groaned on hey. the inside. <laughs> yeah, I still it's, it's not even a top twenty. But I've just I've come to respect it a little bit more. Where I had the reverse when I first heard it as a kid. I was like, what "The fuck is this pansy bullshit?" But then as I've gotten older, I was yeah. like, "Okay, I I can at least see where the thought process was here." It's not ineptly handled at all. Don't misunderstand no. what I'm saying. No. They do a really excellent job the way the whole thing is constructed and it you know but it just it sounds like an anomaly on this record to me it's like you know for all of their kind of uh, you know we've talked about the pop hooks and their ability to do this sort of stuff this just doesn't have that same feel you know and it and it just feels awkward and it feels like tacked on to right. me much as the same way as uh, Kiss and Time did which was literally tacked on to the first album yeah um, but um you know they have the uh, the deluxe edition that came out several years back, and it and it's got some uh, demos on it that were, I guess, of that era. Yeah, a lot of it from uh, Gene, or probably yeah. like the the uh, originals that didn't make the album were all from uh, Gene. Um, do you want to talk about those songs? Yeah, we can talk about it a little bit. Um, my overall take is um, I'd heard some of these before, just in different little bootleg compilations and such like that. Um, but honestly, none of the um, none of the unreleased songs really grabbed me except uh, Reputation, but we'll get to that one. Well, so we would just hit them kind of chronologically as they appear on the record. It's, I guess Much Too Soon was the first. Yeah. Um, kind of forgetful for me. I mean, well, they're all, none I, of them. I, are, I just got a question here. Yeah. Given the lyrics, what's with Gene and little girls? <laughs> I, what is going good, on here? Good question. It's not like it's a time or anything like that. Very, you know. <laughs> it's like he knows, but well, Cap should know about phrasing. It's almost comical. <laughs> I mean, it almost—it really is. I listen to it, and I can't help but snicker. It's like you know, what are you doing, dude? It's like <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> Really? Yeah. I mean, you've got a fixation here, man, and it's a little creepy now. It's got getting a little beyond creepy, but I mean, read that love letter that's on live. But otherwise, this has a very you know, it's got the Beatle vibe to me. Yeah. There's something about the whole construction of it, the delivery of the vocal, all that bounce to it as well. It's got that weird lyric about you know, 
they'll look her over, they'll give her a quarter. <laughs> you know, but I mean, you know, they're giving it's it's but it's much too soon. Much too soon. Much too soon. At, at least you know, Gene. Thanks thanks for letting like, it like thanks he's, for letting us know. <laughs> but to me this is a stronger track than Got Love for Sale or Then She Kissed Me. It could have been a better you know, a better fit on the album. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe if it had Not, a little bit more work with it, just musically it just felt so boring to me. It's well, I think you know, he's leaning a little too hard, I think, into this Beatle territory. It would have been yeah. late era Beatles. When I say Beatles, I don't mean you know. Say so before it becomes a Kiss song, it becomes the a Gene Simmons demo with everything Gene wants first. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how they would have handled it. I think of these other demos we'll talk about here. I think there's other ones that would have fit even better, mm-hmm. including uh, Reputation. Yeah, we can skip over Plaster Caster. It basically doesn't deviate. But yeah, Yeah. Reputation, I thought that one was pretty cool. It's got a little keyboard or uh, piano bit in it. A pretty catchy chorus, too, that I know I've got a reputation. It's it's unrealized potential here. It could have been a very strong track. I think once it it was presented to the band and kiss-sized, I guess, you Mm -hmm. know, with the other guys, it could have turned into something a little different. Not much. It didn't have to be. You know, just like the other albums or other tracks that we saw that didn't go through any grand change, but you know, this could have gotten a little bit more muscled up. Yeah, um, kind of uh, has a similar like uh, setup to like say uh, Radioactive or something like that. I'm trying to figure out listening to this if any of it got recycled into other stuff because um, nothing obvious. I don't, I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything that this that associate I can associate with any other song and no. and. and you know, it maybe just, like the vibe and beat Christine 16 because the main riff is the uh, or at least at the beginning is the doom, yeah, yeah, yeah but and, and all this kind it's of got the, well, it's got boom, the piano thing that boom, he likes. Boom, I don't, boom, I don't, boom. I still don't associate it with that song though. I just, I will say though that I think that song is unrealized potential and we didn't discuss it leading into a destroyer but between Alive and Destroyer they cut a demo for a don't a song called Don't You Hesitate. Yeah. yeah. That song that I think is one, really good unrealized potential. It could have you know and it makes me wonder why these songs never survive the 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 process because paul um, said so don't you, don't you hesitate. but then you got i know who you are which we know will be resurrected on gene's solo album is living yeah. in sin yeah is it better well we can discuss that i guess once we get to that yeah. album but um we need to check market and remember that mm-hmm. it exists i'm sitting there going like i gotta listen to gene's record again <sighs> hey it's better than peter's <laughs> Well, <laughs> oh, I got to re-listen to that one too. <laughs> so, in the that pretty much covers the album, I and guess. Then, yeah, and then we've got. Uh, well, if we're talking about the deluxe, they rounded off with three live in '77 tracks, yeah. well, I, and I put that in air quotes because I'm sorry. Listening back to it, the vocal may be right, the drum, I mean, and the guitars may all still be original. Those drums sound reprocessed. Like it sounds like they re-triggered the snare and kick. It sounds very bizarre. Not well, like any other stuff I don't they've know. got. It doesn't. They don't sound like multi-track recordings to me. They sound like they're recorded off of like uh, ambient mics in the room. Because oh yeah, you can still record a, over drums with that. It sounds no. like they just added drum samples on. Like I those, was about to ask. Like the like you know the Alive ninety six ninety seven tour. How Peter's drums had that certain sampled sound to yeah. it. It, it, it sounded like they just kind of 
played some drums over top the <laughs> new recordings well, and just like beefed it up. It sounds of, weird. There's a ton of live reissues that have been like that. That Cheap Trick one that just came out did the same thing. Oh, did they? Mm-hmm. I, I like the sound of those those tracks, though. I think I like that ambient quality. It's different. Oh, it's yeah. Not like, you it's know, not overproduced. Yeah, but um, before they go on tour, in the process of recording, uh, I've got the date is May 25th. They go to Buffalo, New York, and uh, add the blood to the red ink for their upcoming Marvel comic. Yes. Now the uh, now the uh, the the, uh, the the direction is uh, shifting. Well, they're getting yeah. I mean, and it's this is a pretty cool thing. I think. I mean, it, it again contextualized only as Kiss. Kiss could do this. Uh, Aerosmith couldn't have had a comic book. No. And it's not a and that's not a slight on Aerosmith at all. But they were just a rock band. Well, they they could have a roller coaster. Band, we know what I mean. But, you know, they also had a pinball machine eventually too. Blah blah blah. blah whatever. But right. it's not. They didn't have the same vibe, the same feel. Kiss had. Kiss were tailor made for a comic book. You know, I didn't. You know, at the time, you know, it was it was a, it was a deal to be with, being to be able to even find it because I don't remember ever seeing it anywhere, but. That neither here nor there. They obviously famously advertised that the uh, the comic was printed in real, real kiss, kiss blood, blood because they yeah. had their blood, you know, in drawn and put it in vials and <laughs> dropped it into the red ink. Um, uh, depending on the story, again. I, the myth might exist, see the reality. I'm sure they did that. Um, the point of this series question everything. There's footage of them doing it. But uh, apparently that red ink did not wind up in that comic book. It actually wound up in a... Uh, Sports Illustrated? Sports Illustrated. What? But, yeah. But, you know... The, like, so the, actually as legend sports, has it, is the, the batches got switched or, or swapped whatever. in the Just in the, the production schedule got changed or whatever. You know? uh, someone didn't, didn't write the right memo, and yeah, that, that red got shipped off somewhere. And I think the reason they were able to figure out that that happened is because the paper... That's used in like magazines and stuff, especially at that time, was a little different than what was used in comic books. Comic book pages were a lot more, you know, yeah, more of a newsprint where magazines, you know, stuff had a little bit more of that glossier and nicer stuff. So when the red mixed with the blood started getting printed on that nicer paper, it started to smear and discolor. Whereas if it was on more of that newspaper stock paper, it wouldn't have done as much. And I think that's even how they, but I mean, I guess that's possible. I don't know, but kiss blood all over OJ Simpson or whoever the fuck Ah! in 1977. (laughs) Here's the other thing that they would only be happy if it was the uh, swimsuit edition with Christy Brinkley or some shit. It's also, this is the last time they would appear in public in their destroyer costume. Yeah. Okay. But if you look at the footage and photos of this, Gene is wearing his alive boots with the destroyer top, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, they're yeah. wearing almost he's like a mixed match of stuff. He's not wearing the traditional destroyer boots, but that's the last time they would so that's how fast the uh the cycle of that costuming and stuff goes because now they're getting uh Fitted for new outfits, for new costumes, you know. And it shows on the cover as well. Yeah. Yeah, and again, as I've said so many times before, this is my absolute favorite era of their costumes. Specifically, 
they had two versions of it, or at least Ace had two versions of his costume. No, Gene uh, he had, had two. Did he? As okay. Well. Yeah, but the first version of those costumes were my favorite, especially Ace's, because Ace's touring costume, the material that was used was almost kind of like a. Uh, it, it was it was like a woven silver material. Yeah, that's why he used in the touring mm-hmm. version. Yeah, but, but the, the photo was almost like a slick silver, yeah, kind of like what the uh, yeah. almost like what the piping on yeah. the destroyer costume looked like. It was that all over, so it was like really flashy Apparently, and bright, yeah, shiny, and oh, was, it just looks so cool. It wasn't road worthy though. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was. Gonna, it would crinkle. It would, it I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, they, they said it would like even after photo shoot it would crinkle so much that it would look like crap by the next day and they'd have to do like a replacement armband or some shit for them. They went to the same guy that did uh, the Destroyer cover too, right? Yep, they did. Ken Kelly, again, iconic cover art. uh, You know, And costume designer, (laughs) essentially. Those two covers just work so well for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. I totally agree. You know, we can debate, but those are arguably the two best um, covers they ever had and th- love gun makes a great poster too yeah it yeah. looks so all, good all on the of wall it looks great now the uh the uh the girls if you notice the girls that surround them they're all wearing white face and they all look identical yeah mm-hmm. and, and there's a reason for that because they are all identical that he modeled the model for that was kim kelly's wife oh okay <laughs> and if you sense. do notice on the uh the left side uh one has no body Oh, because it's almost unfinished, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's not even just oh. unfinished. It's just, just, just a floating a disem- head. Disembodied head. Yeah, this is a floating head. I've, I've got the uh, the photo up here. Um, folks at home are, you know, pull out your record collection, take a look. But yeah, yeah, at the very bottom, look at the head on the far right on the left yeah. side. It's just floating there. Well, There's a, nothing. That's floating right. kiss head. Yeah. <laughs> Floating you're little lady head. The, you're getting the idea, though. That, you know, you don't have to I discredit it. Just, <laughs> I remember studying that cover when I was a little kid because you know there was there was something a little naughty about oh, it. Yeah, it, it looks like you it's know, like, sex like dungeon. You can see their nipples. Well, that cover, <laughs> that cover too, but, like but, but you know, like poking through the material whenever they're wearing. <laughs> But that, that's one of those covers that, uh, you know, Kiss haters talk about, too. We're like, the cover looks like it's the most metal thing ever. And then we get, I stole your love. Right. I, and, I, and I understand that. I've had that conversation with people before. And, and I had the same kind of reaction when uh, Alice Cooper made his comeback in the 80s. And I was, a, you know, a young teenager, not really aware of too much Alice Cooper. And going and trying to discover Alice Cooper. And the first album I go into is School's Out. Yeah. Right. And by the time you get to the end of School's Out, you're just like, what in the fuck am I listening to? (laughs) And now it's my favorite Alice Cooper record. Interesting. All right. But as a teenager, I was expecting like some... You know, I was expecting Black Sabbath or something. You yeah, know? There's a lot going on. That's cool. So, record. yeah, <laughs> Alice Cooper in general, you know, you, you get the, and this is true for Kiss, you get this sort of, you know, hard, almost, you know, horror movie, almost demonic kind of image. And then you get these pop songs that are kind of, you know, yeah, they're kind of uh, bouncing and, and, you know, but to me at the time, I didn't, I didn't know any better. So I grew up with that. So it, it made perfect sense to me all along. Right. Yeah. That's like the one album that and Destroyer probably the the two that I hear a lot from like haters that are like, oh, it doesn't match the uh, the art they do, but you know they love Molly Hatchet and shit too, and that's the worst example of that. Oh kind god, of thing. yes. <laughs> 
Well, um, going back to the comic book, you know, they had already made their first appearance in Howard the Duck. There is a Howard the Duck number 12. There's mm-hmm. a very brief appearance of Kiss in that. Interesting. And then they pop up again in the following issue. These came out in May and June. And then the Kiss comic came out in September of 77. Um, they couldn't get the Incredible Hulk. They got Howard the Duck. <laughs> I, well, I, I think I'm not sure that that was. I'm not sure what the story is behind that. But I think the uh, the writer for Howard the Duck, who I think was Steve Gerber, uh, did that kind of. He just freelanced that in. But I'm I'm sure by the by that point that you know the Kiss comic was already into play. Right. So they had to so tie I it don't in know, somehow. Yeah, I don't know exactly. Well, it doesn't really tie in. Oh, it's just okay. it's just a like it's like a fever dream that Howard the Duck has, if I remember right. It's something to do with that. I, it's I used to have that issue. I'm not a comic book guy at all. I bought it because you know I knew that was the one. The Kiss one, yeah. I have no idea what I've done with that. It's long gone. <laughs> I actually still have one upstairs. Oh well, then you where'd you get it? From Eric. Hey, that's probably the one. I have. <laughs> there we go. Now I know where it probably wound up. <laughs> so it's probably taking a I big probably full gave sort. it to Eric, and Eric probably gave it to you. Okay. Uh, well, hey, Russ, I have your comic book. <laughs> there you go. You're welcome to it. Uh, so this album is released and ships platinum. The first album that Casablanca ships platinum. I was going to say, did it return platinum? And no, it didn't return platinum. I don't even not know until that. the next year. I think this album, right. you know, this is an era where we really don't know true actual album sales because it was enough to ship platinum that you know if if they ship whatever they ship is what the uh, RIAA would count as. You know, an album sale, even though it didn't necessarily sell. So they got their platinum record award for this. Right. Um, it peaks at number four on Billboard, but we also know now, courtesy of Larry Harris, that you know they were heavily involved in manipulating those chart positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Payola was still a thing to yeah. a degree. Um, so we really don't know how well this record sold. It doesn't really matter. It certainly left a huge impression. This is the beginning of, like you said, what would become the Super Kiss era. This is yeah. because this is the beginning of their biggest point in their entire career. As big as they've ever enjoyed any success ever, nothing compares to the, what's going to follow over the next two years. Mm-hmm. 77 is just so important, and this album is so important as, as the really the kickoff for this uh they've been building and building and they've enjoyed you know major success with the live uh they uh, their first real top 10 hit with beth but they seem to still just be bubbling under the surface i mean they're and i don't want to use the word or the term also ran but they're in the also ran to a certain degree but they're about to break through in a very significant way that's going to permeate culture in a a whole different level. They're going to become much more than just a mere rock and roll band. Um, But before they get there, they have to once again hit the road. And they go on, uh, they embark on probably like their biggest tour up to this point too, right? actually, it's It's a pretty short tour. It's a very short tour. There's only like 32 dates on this. But don't they And it's primarily in Canada. But don't they have like their own plane at this point and everything too? No, that that was the uh, episode previous, wasn't it? 
Well, uh, where we discussed the uh, the private jet thing, uh, because that was the rock and roll overhead into Japan. Well, they, that was just one up for that Japan trip. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't know that I don't know how they're traveling from show to show on this. It's possible they might have gotten a a plane charter for this. I'm not sure. This is back when bands could get like their own logo on well, like a 747 well, the, 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 or something the like common, that. The common, the, the, the plane of that era was called the starship and, okay. that was, and it was owned by uh, a teen idol from the late sixties, early seventies named Bobby Sherman. Okay. A lot of people don't know that, but he, him, he, it was an investment he made, I guess via his management or whatever. And they leased that plane out to bands uh, the band that made that plane famous was Led Zeppelin. I was about to. That's what I think of when I think of like bands with their own planes. But and Alice it, Cooper Alice used Cooper, it. Yeah. Alice Cooper, yeah. The, the Allman Brothers used it. Did um, the Rolling Stones use it too? I think the Stones used it. I don't think that's the plane that's in the infamous Cocksucker Blues movie. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, I didn't realize it was like that that famous plane that you see in all of those photos was rented out by. Yeah, you know, that was no one owned that. It's all vibrato. It was it was it was owned by Bobby Sherman and um, I guess some other investors, and they leased it out. That plane was going to get scrapped after uh, I think it was like seventy seven was the last year that plane was used. So okay. they wouldn't have used it on this tour. I'd be you know, and I think if if they had ever used the Starship, we would know about it. Right. Um, but this tour featured a cheap trick, and yeah. then at the very tail end, for uh, maybe about four shows, Sticks, Sticks. joined on. Yeah, and uh, but this was the tour that broke Cheap Trick in an important way. Of course, it would take another year when the Live at Budokan came out. Came out, but you know, to me, that's like this is like the perfect pairing. This is like peanut I butter agree. and jelly. Oh, I yeah. mean, how can you not all I, these pop songs? This this would have been like, I mean. You know, this to me would have been the ultimate time to see him because you that know, would be the time machine tour for me. For it would sure, be, it's a, you know you get a really great strong opening act, and then you get you, know, you get the, the big the, the greatest show on kiss, earth at yeah. that point. So you know this is a, this is an incredible tour, and you know everybody just, had you still look at a cheap tricks. Uh, inst- uh, online social media pages these day, uh, today, and they're still like hyping up that tour and how and you know recounting uh, how great that experience was for them. Yeah, I can only imagine. And um, you know, again, this is a short tour. It's only thirty two dates, and it's primarily in Canada and the American West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no East Coast dates on this. They don't play uh, Madison Square Garden or any of the you know or the spectrum or any of the east coast strongholds uh they do uh play well i've got some notable dates put down as like august 16th obviously 77 elvis presley dies yeah and they um dedicate rock and roll all night to him um i've read in other places that they've played they played jailhouse rock but there's a bootleg of that show exists and they do not play it. Uh, and it's also, they are, I guess, preparing for what will be alive too, because as we talked about before, uh, they recorded the shows in Tokyo the previous spring with right. Eddie Kramer and, uh, Eddie Belandis, I guess that's how you pronounce his name, uh, records his intro for Alive 2 
in a bathroom at the cow palace <laughs> and they don't but they don't they don't use his entire intro because they didn't feel like he said kiss forcefully enough yep. so gene says oh, the kiss part. but anyway with that we'll get to that in the in the alive 2 episode uh they yeah, do because, record because i was gonna say the alive 2 tour is what actually wound up being a lot bigger and that's where they yeah. had a lot more saved. yeah it seems like they i don't know that they're aiming towards this in a particular way, or if it's just the way, you know, again, things are moving so, so fast, fast. And, and it cycles so quickly, but, uh, August 26th, 27th and 28th in the forum in LA is where they ostensibly record a live two. And we'll go into greater detail on that in the next episode. Um, a week later, not even a week later, they're at the Houston Summit, mm-hmm. which is, of course, one of their more widely bootlegged videos that yeah. exist. Yep. The reason for that is because the Houston Summit had an in-house recording system that they projected the, or you know, camera system that they projected on the screens above, I guess, above the stage in the arena. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of arenas that had that in-house, and that's why you see kind of a greater uh, amount of bootlegs for that. For you know, there's a lot of live at Houston for bands. Yep. Journey has one. There's a P Funk one. Yeah, there's, now there's, that I'm thinking there's about a bunch it. out there I'm... because they had that feed. Same with uh, Budokan, even. Uh, well, Budokan didn't have a live feed. I don't think. Oh, okay. They just had those professionally filmed by a company over there. But uh, Kobo Hall had one. Kobo, that's what. And I'm... then. Um, See Houston, and then uh, it was oh Largo, Maryland, yeah, Capital Center, and so you get a lot from from there too. But uh, those those were you know winding down at the end of that tour. Their last date is September fifth in Fort Worth, and again, thirty two dates on this. Um, you know, it just seems it just seems kind of odd to me that you know we're talking about this as the kickoff for their biggest era, and they've done this really kind of short tour in what I would call B markets, you know, Canada. Well, it is interesting. So, I mean, if we want to look at it from that aspect, uh, they kick off July eighth and September fifth, and that's their Love Gun uh, run, and then for so it's basically um, the month of. Was it the, well the whole summer? What, what, what do you got the first date as? July eighth. Yeah, I've got it in oh. Nova Scotia. Uh huh. And then, uh, well, I've got uh, Halifax, July eighth. Yeah, the Halifax. Form, Halifax yeah. is in Nova Scotia. Okay, sorry. Uh, and then, uh, Ju- and then, yeah, ending in September fifth at uh, Fort Worth. Right. But then Alive Two immediately picks up November fifteenth. So they only have like two months off before they're right back on the road November fifteenth in Oklahoma City. Yeah, and we'll, interesting. And they run that all the way until February. Then they hop back on over to Japan for well, March. I know we're jumping way ahead, yeah. but you, you you know what I'm saying though. So even though Love Gun Tour itself may have not done a lot. They really push it hard going all the way into uh, well, it's 78. It's essentially the same tour. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it probably would be kind of remiss to look at it any other way. Um, but this this is the beginning of you know the the era, the prime era. And we're going to see you know the influx of toys and pinball and, and egos. everything. And, and egos. episodes are about and, to get and, fun and, up in here. Yes, they I, are. And I, and I really think this is the beginning of the end for them. I think, you know, this is the last album that they record. All four do it. With all four on it. Yeah. And working together. I think, um, and again, I think, you know, 
this is oddly enough, this is Peter Chris's um, swan song with the band, kind of, and also, but it's also his strongest uh, studio drumming. Yeah, I mean, he's doing some really cool stuff on this record. It's totally overlooked. And there's a lot of some of uh, the best highlights of Ace's guitar playing on this it's, album too. It's a, it's a strong record. I just feel like it could have been stronger. I mm-hmm. just think if it had that same power and presence and punch of rock and roll ever, it could have been an even better record. That's that's of course obviously just my opinion. Yeah. Um I mean obviously it it's still great as it exists as it is, you know, it's a, a bona fide classic now. Oh and, yeah. You Absolutely. Know, so this and, is uh, so like a t- eight out of ten for me too. You know, it's uh, I don't dislike any of the songs on the record. I agree with you on uh, "Rock and Roll Over" being stronger, but "Love Gun" definitely has its own uh, charm. Like you know, all my favorite Kiss records do too. Yeah, well, it just feels more bubblegum compared to "Rock and Roll Over" to me, and I, I don't say that in a bad way. Yeah, right. You know, because I, I have an affinity for really good, strong, well done bubblegum pop from the 70s and and even though it's probably number one favorite i'll probably give it eight and a half out of ten it's like i don't think there's been a 10 out of i mean i know you probably think rock and roll over is a 10 out of 10 but in my opinion i don't think kiss has had a perfect 10 out of 10 record where every single song is oh my god if you don't like this something's wrong with you yeah i feel that there's a handful of records i have that are like that but yeah i don't think kiss is really that's a rare thing in any band though it is but but for for me to pick an album that's that's a short list really Yeah. Oh yeah, but but that's why I can't just give it a straight right, ten out of ten with as much as I've right. been gushing over it. It's, yeah. I I simply can't. But no, super strong record for me. It's just I don't know. I, I feel there may be a little bit of nostalgia connected to it because like certain like cool moments in my life, I feel like I was listening to that record a lot and stuff like that. So it's like maybe there's a little bit of that. But I don't know. When I take the nostalgia lenses off, I pop in the headphones or I turn up the stereo and fucking I stole your love kicks on it's like ah, oh, it's there, great, there's there's it's no it's, it's, I love it's it. nothing I, better I, man and, and if it sounds like i'm i'm crumbing on you're it, not, not you're not i just have to i just have to give this but album so much love my, because i don't think i feel like this toward any other kiss and record I, I gotta note the further record you know my perspective is a little bit different because you know i remember this as a new album and um I was, you know, I don't know. I might, I might, you know, this is a long, long time ago. So it may not have been their brand new album at that point, but I think it was probably their most recent album because I came aboard in that 77, 78 era. And I had a, I had friends that lived down the street and across the street were these girls that were the daughters of my second grade teacher. My mm-hmm. second grade teacher lived across the street from our friends of mine at the time. And they're the ones that had that record and mm. they brought it over. And I could, I still remember that. I could, I, just, I can, I can see it in my head. I yeah. can just remember, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that makes this stuff kind of special for me. Oh yeah. Because I tie it to these memories and these moments and these occurrences, you know, and you're just like, you know, I don't know how to relate that in an era where, you know, like where people younger than us even never have known an era where there was no internet where there was no way to access information so easily, you know, I don't think that Kiss could have, you know, maintained those personas in such secrecy without no. people, you know, they wouldn't, the, the press wouldn't have played along with it like no. they did then. But, um, you know, we'll talk more about this as we go into, you know, the next the next few episodes, I think, are going to get pretty exciting. Oh, yeah. So, hopefully, you guys are enjoying the ride, and we hope that you'll uh, continue along with us for... Uh, the uh, 
for this ride. Uh, for Alex and Cap, I'm Russ, and this is No Time to Turn, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.